0: Cavalcade Audio Productions and Mixed Signals Media present Voice from the Void, a podcast about Star Drifter and the Star Drifter universe. I am your host, writer-creator David Collins-Rivera, and this is Episode 8. Today we'll be taking on a rich topic, one not often covered in detail within modern science fiction stories, namely money, finance, economics, cash, and investment. How do you go about running a thriving economy spread across the stars? In EJOC's time, how is the fiscal framework of the galaxy structured? How do you save for the future? And how do you buy a packet of chip chunks? We'll have the answers to these and many other valuable questions right after the update. Okay, here it is. I decided to take the holidays off from book four, All He Surveys. Accordingly, there wasn't much progress on that front in December, although I have gotten back into it since the new year. It's bubbling along, or simmering, or warming up at least. I did work on other projects. A short Christmas episode of my audio sitcom, Eddie K, and a long overdue issue of the Cavalcade audio newsletter, High Desert. In that issue, I covered the second half of our vacation misadventures this past spring, and talked about my plans and schemes for 2019. Now, I'll be presenting a new Star Drifter Audio short story in the next issue of the newsletter, if all goes according to plan. So, if you're not subscribed, I urge you to stop by cavalcadeaudio.com and sign up. It's free, and we'll be going back to a monthly schedule this year. New content gets released through there first. Those of you who are on the list, be on the lookout for the audio story, Lacey and Time, set soon after the events depicted in The Proposal. The story's not finished yet, but I like what I have so far. In another piece of news... A friend of mine named Klaatu, along with his buddy Seth Kenlin and I, have gotten together to create a small gaming endeavor called Mixed Signals Media. It'll have a focus on tabletop role-playing card and board games. You may have noticed that I mentioned it at the top of the episode, because Voice from the Void will be a joint release from now on. No, you won't be hearing anyone else on this show. It'll still just be me, and everything else will continue to be the same. So why am I bothering? Well, one of the more ambitious goals we have for Mixed Signals is to produce role-playing game materials for Star Drifter. The idea is to create a game setting and specific rules that are easily adaptable to various popular game systems. That's a long way off just yet, but we know how to approach it and have full intentions of doing so. If you like Star Drifter, and I assume you do because you're listening to this, and you like gaming, this will be your opportunity to play an EJox universe. When it's ready. Head on over to our blog at mixedsignals.ml. At the moment, we're focused on articles about gaming, technology, the creative process, and new supplementary ideas for fantasy RPG adventures, with plenty more to come. Sign up to the RSS or Atom feeds and get something strange and wonderful delivered to you every single day. Eventually, we'll be doing a podcast and all sorts of stuff. I'll talk more about Mixed Signals Media as projects and ideas evolve. Okay... Current status. I'm still on chapter 23, draft one of all he surveys. I'm just about at 135,000 words. Next goal chapter 30 or 150,000 words. I don't think I'll be able to pull it off, but I'm nothing if not a dreamer. And that's it for the update. In Ejak's time, the bulk of humanity has settled upon a single currency, the official name of which is the Credit Unit of Exchange, or C-U-E, pronounced Q, just like in English. In Inglis, that same word is spelled K-Y-U, but this particular version is not a word, it's an acronym. The symbol for it is, in fact, a stylized capital letter Q, meant as a direct phonic clue to its meaning among a population that doesn't speak English or spell the word Q like we do. The letter Q, however, does appear in all the major languages of space, so everyone's familiar with it. In referencing a particular amount of money, say 100 units of this currency, a person would write the number 100 as numerals, followed immediately by a capital Q, no space, 100Q. Being an acronym, the plural of the Q is technically credit units of exchange. So you'd say 2Q, 3Q, 4Q, whatever, not 2Qs, 3Qs, 4Qs. The Q is both singular and plural. You can generally tell if a person is from somewhere other than the mixed economy nations if they make that mistake right off the bat. The Q is an electronic currency. There's no such thing as printed or minted Q. It can probably be seen as a descendant of modern cryptocurrencies, but that technology eventually merged with fiat currencies, mostly on Terra, and was superseded by other approaches. The Q does not derive either an architecture or philosophy with any of our modern cryptocurrencies, and was designed without any direct reference to them. The queue was created by a banking coalition spread throughout Ainspace and was, at first, meant as a common certificate of exchange between the member banks located in disparate states with widely differing currencies and economies. Their goal was to bypass individual financial firms, stock exchanges, investment speculators, and other money handlers centered in highly fluctuating and more or less gambling-based markets. The credit unit of exchange was anchored to a single agreed-upon rate based on the collective economies of the nations wherein the member banks were located, taken as a whole. It was not a speculative tool for trading back and forth on the open market against other currencies, but rather a way to deliver funds from one banking house to another without risk. An equivalent today might be some sort of bond fixed to the gross domestic product of the entire world averaged over time, so that relatively predictable peaks and valleys could be anticipated and factored into transfers or holds on large sums. This was seen as nothing more than a safe way to move money between banks, but eventually it was also used between certain highly respected non-financial corporate entities, despite the original intent. A hard and fast need for something this reliable was obvious once predictive computing of future economic conditions became accurate enough to alter the value of exchange sums within the proliferation delay of data moved via Star Jump. As discussed in previous episodes, distribution of information in the StarDrifter universe is entirely dependent upon the smooth flow of commercial traffic. Any interruption or slowdown of service to say nothing of star systems underserved by data traffic to begin with and you have a real delay in information distribution. It could be hours, days, weeks or even more for such places to acquire economic data updates. Even a matter of minutes is enough for large sums of money to change hands in a busy exchange or monetary transfer service following traditional methods, hence the underlying need for the queue. In time, the averaging of the member GDPs went from being annual to biennial to every five years, and finally to being based upon the long-term predictive computations of dedicated artificial intelligences. Governments and corporations taking out loans from these financial bodies soon saw the advantage of pegging their debt to the value of the Q, rather than to their own currencies or singular economies, since the former tended towards solid stability. Eventually, some nations here and there began equating the base value of their currencies to that of the Q, one for one, in an effort to fight runaway inflation and to put a cap on devaluation. Businesses and consumers in these nations were, thereafter, using the Q in all-but-name as their everyday form of money. Politics intervened when the Montero Commercial Federation was established. The sovereign borders of corporate space were declared, and a currency was required. The Q was, by this point, very well understood by economic specialists, so official and normalized use of it began on day one. From the big component companies of corporate space right down to the average person, the standard unit of currency was now the queue. While the Montero Super Corporation represents an actual, if ever growing, location in the galaxy, corporate space holdings can be found throughout all of settled space. Dealing with these assets and subsidiaries grew inconvenient for all parties involved when the value of the local currency was badly misaligned with that of the Q. So much so, in fact, that corporate space holdings in other nations instituted service charges and processing fees for all local transactions, large and small, that were not conducted with the Q or a currency pegged to it. In time, the original banking coalition established an independent financial corporation as an indirect layer between itself and Q Transactions. The name of this corporation was Sagacious Financial Services or SFS. Right from the start, it was formally engaged by Montero upper management to administer the financial structure of corporate space, including cash transactions and internal investment operations. Several nations in the alliance also voted to allow SFS a similar degree of executive guidance, with appropriate oversight, of course. The seamlessness of these changeovers prompted a block of AIN senators to propose enacting laws for a widespread commitment to this now not-so-new style of money. After lengthy debate, AIN space became the second supernation to officially adopt the Q as its unit of currency noble space was much slower to cleave to the queue, with this Duke or that countess holding out for various personal, sentimental, or philosophical reasons. It took an imperial edict from Empress Nicoletta I, affectionately nicknamed the Radiant Lass, to finally make it universal within the Empire. Like elsewhere, SFS offices and facilities were set up there as licensed franchises by various important families, including that of the Empress herself. Church space has only adopted the queue sporadically thus far. The majority of substates in that supernation continue to use a complicated and inefficient system based largely on barter and so-called letters of state which act like redeemable coupons for large suppliers of goods and services. Institutionalized graft and other forms of corruption are said to be entrenched there as a direct result of this inefficiency. Now then, the need for long-term savings and investment by ordinary people was seen as key to creating a rich, stable, multinational economy. Nothing instills interest and faith in an economic system like personal investment. It requires not only part of one's wealth, but also at least a slight degree of education about money. Many schemes were tried in many places, and many of these simultaneously. Eventually, the concept of hard and soft credit evolved and was adopted in Ain corporate space and most places in the empire. Hard and soft credit are terms you'll find in economic discussions right now, here in the 21st century. It's important to understand, though, that our modern financial definitions of these terms have nothing at all to do with the ones used in this future time. They are entirely unrelated. In the star drifter sense, hard credit may be best seen as the modern equivalent of cash. Transactions with it are not necessarily anonymous the way physical cash deals are, but they can be, if desired, depending upon the exact nature of the deal. Hard credit is linked to an account owned by an individual or corporate entity. In many places, this account, along with a corresponding soft credit account, is created at birth, following the individual around throughout the course of their life. Arranging access to this financial data is usually among the first orders of business whenever a person arrives in a new place. This type of information is mostly delivered through the normal data harvesting and dissemination process performed by commercial starships throughout space, as discussed in a previous episode. It's entirely possible, therefore, to arrive in a place ahead of the latest financial updates, more or less remaining broke until that information catches up. At the beginning of Book 2, Street Candles, Ejok finds himself in this type of bind, and as a result, ends up taking the first job that comes his way. He probably should have waited. The way hard credit transactions are generally conducted is for the purchaser to go through the IDENT verification process, usually in the form of an instant DNA check of some kind. Instead of the traditional cash register that we might recognize today, merchants of this future have an IDENT device that's networked with a settlement's local SFS branch. It instantly establishes the consumer's identity, verifies they have enough hard credit to cover the transaction, and then proceeds to deduct the appropriate number of Q from their account and place it into the merchant's. Transaction fees do not exist in this service, as the cost of operating the Q system as a whole is covered by Sagacious, which makes its own profits through very short-term yet fully insured investments of tiny fractions of a settlement's fluid cash in local-only, low-risk financial markets. Sometimes the length of these investments is only a few fractions of a second, but in that time, SFS has profited by a few fractions of a queue. Spread out over the thousands, millions, or billions of queue transactions per day in a star system or on a planet, an SFS is able to provide a free service, air quotes there, to one and all, while still pulling down a substantial profit. Hard credit can be put into physical electronic devices called wallets. Despite the name, these can take nearly any form from data sticks, cards, rings, subdermal implants, and much more. Wallets may be universal, allowing anyone to use them, or they may be encrypted, requiring a passkey. Whatever the form, they are a way to access at least some of your ready cash when the most current data load is still forthcoming. Not every merchant accepts universal wallet transactions, since they can have a shady reputation, but many do. A variation on the private wallet is one that's issued by a reputable financial institution. These are always linked to the ident information on record of a person named on the wallet itself, which is then used as a supposedly uncrackable passkey. Soft credit is the flip side of the Q transaction. By law, a certain percentage of all wages, dividends, and other profits earned by ordinary citizens must be issued as soft credit. This is money that is automatically placed into that individual's personal, long-term investment account. This account is quite safe, accruing income slowly over time. The money remains in the account until the individual reaches retirement age, at which time it becomes unlocked and usable. Soft credit means that elderly citizens no longer need to worry about their golden years, nor is the burden of care placed upon families or the state. Some people feel that mandatory soft credit is unfair or even tyrannical, but the majority do not. There are legal mechanisms in place to access one's soft credit earlier than retirement age, but they are neither easy nor quick, and this is deliberate. In corporate space, AIN, and the empire, everyone is a personal investor. Citizens may move their soft credit around to any authorized low-risk investment fund as they wish. High or even moderate risk investments can only be made with hard credit. The profits from these riskier investments, or percentages thereof, can then be funneled into soft credit accounts if desired, which is one safe way for people to take chances with their money for the sake of their retirement. Obtaining loans from banks and other financial firms requires a similar level of trust and proof as it does today. However, it is illegal to use one's soft credit as collateral nor can it be easily seized by debtors or lost to lawsuits and fines. It is an underlying philosophy of this monetary system that all people have a fundamental right to a comfortable future. Upon reaching retirement age, many decide to use their soft credit with other less restrictive investment plans, often with portfolios that balance risk with safety and allow for a monthly stipend. With the rise of Age Reassignment Procedures, or ARP, more and more people who are physically young in body, but elderly in years, are gaining access to the minor fortunes they built up over the course of decades, allowing for interesting, if chaotic, financial trends to arise. Some of these folks do the reinvestment stipend thing and just stay retired, living modest lives of relative leisure. Others reinvest and take the stipend, but also continue to work, adding their wages to the monthly dividends, which allows for some true luxury. At their age, divvying up new income into hard and soft credit becomes optional, as opposed to mandatory, and many of these elderlings, as they are sometimes called, choose not to do so the second time around. This provides them with large amounts of liquid cash. Still others take their retirement savings and invest it into whole new ventures, often becoming part or sole owners of businesses, including ships and freighting services. ARP aside, medical research on the effects of aging has come a very long way by this time. Most of the symptoms of age-related illnesses can be minimized or even eliminated, allowing for a much greater degree of robustness and health for older citizens. Taken together with the imposed financial structure of soft credit, this has mitigated the appalling expenses associated with care for the aged. Costs that would be impossibly burdensome to any national economy when the human population has ballooned to such incredible numbers across the stars. The approach individual governments take on taxation varies widely. In some places, taxes are levied on the general population in order to cover the operating costs of the government as well as the construction and upkeep of infrastructure. In other places, the larger burden is on businesses. In still others, the tax bill is shared by both. Some nations experiment with complicated systems that supposedly do away with taxes entirely, usually requiring them to charge processing and handling fees for just about everything. All these taxation systems are possible, at least in theory, using the Q as the underlying currency. Now then, something mentioned in Star Drifter from time to time is a space vessel's build bond. The purchase cost of even a small space boat is beyond the means of most working folk. Consortiums sometimes are able to purchase vessels outright, especially if they're used. But most often, a type of financing is arranged equal to the building cost of the vessel, plus whatever profit margin the manufacturer has chosen, plus the financing rate. This is the build bond and it's held as a letter of title until paid off, either by the financing arm of the original manufacturing company or by a separate financing service. Vessels tend to change hands quite a bit. The build bond does not follow the current owner, but rather the vessel itself. The value of the ship or boat can often be seen as the difference between the remaining debt of the bond, which adds to a vessel's purchase cost, versus the vessel's age and current condition, which tend to devalue it. Every prospective owner dreams of finding a vessel that's in good shape, largely free of outmoded internal systems, and with a low build bond. This exact combination, however, adds to its resale value, so uncovering a bargain can be difficult. Any new owners of a vessel take on its build bond at whatever state it's in, up to and including being in arrears and on the repo man's list. Older, obsolete vessels, as well as damaged or neglected ones, can end up for sale at deep discounts. This price is usually independent of the build bond, so ongoing costs for the new owners might include both a loan to a finance company for the actual purchase of the ship and a separate debt to the manufacturer for the bond. Defaulting on either can result in loss of the ship through repossession. As a final note... It has been observed by some that, aside from minor border disputes here and there, military conflict between the three supernations that utilize the Q as its base currency, along with sagacious financial services to oversee and issue it, has effectively ceased. One cynical argument is that this is mere coincidence, and it'll only be a matter of time before they get around to annihilating each other. The optimistic view is that it's a sign the human race is finally growing up. A more rounded opinion seems to be that it's the very act of mixing economies between corporate space, Ain, and the Empire which has made large-scale war, or more specifically its aftermath, much too expensive a proposition to entertain. No longer do rich autocrats look over borders with hunger or contempt because they are very often looking at their own property and investments when they do. Attacking the neighbors now seems an awful lot like attacking oneself. Some economists speculate that the future of the galaxy is a blended one, where fiscal, political, and social differences no longer matter. They see the coming years as being filled with joint ventures and cooperation with universal peace and growth as priceless side benefits. Others who are, perhaps, less hopeful or inclusive point toward church space, with its chaotic, often contradictory stances on money and finance as examples of a very large economy that will not be going anywhere near the Q model for the foreseeable future. And no one yet knows what sort of money or financial structures are in place out in the frontier regions, where, even now, the foundations for vast societies and their unknown economies are perhaps being formed. It's possible the Q will help to shape those societies of humankind that are yet to come. It's also possible it will amount to little more than a footnote seen in the scope of history. Perhaps the final word on money and wealth has yet to be written. So that's it about money and cash in the Star Drifter universe, at least for now. Obviously, one could do a podcast about this subject all on its own. But, that's some other, more boring show, not this one. If you have any questions or comments, drop me a line and we'll get you squared away. Next time, we'll lay off star jumping for a bit, to take a look at non-jump-capable spaceboats. Just because a vessel can't leave its home star system, doesn't mean it's crippled. You always want to use the right tool for the job, and never has that been more true than in Ajax time. Space boats range from largely automated cargo vessels, all the way up to huge military battle boats, more than capable of holding their own in nearly any conflict. Boats are small and boats are big, coming in every configuration imaginable. And this future simply couldn't run without them. Join me as we cover the details of future sublight vessels that move and work within the far-flung star systems of the galaxy. Next time on Voice from the Void. No wicked, you have been listening to Voice from the Void, written and read by David Collins Rivera. This podcast is a presentation of Cavalcade Audio Productions and Mixed Signals Media. The theme music is a piece called Wicked Ways by Kilobyte, that's K-I-L-L-A-B-Y-T-E, featuring Danika Nadeau, and is available through no copyright sounds at ncs.io wickedwaysid. This podcast discusses fictional works and characters and is not meant to portray any person, living or dead, nor any particular place or situation. Voice from the Void is copyright 2019 by the author and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. Thank you for listening. Take care.